go, go, go. Trying to post on Instagram. Sorry, I'm old, as most of you are well aware of. So <laughs> whenever I'm told I have to go share things and promote things and do things, I'm always like, oh, crap. What, all right, what do I click buttons here and I do this and I do, okay, I'll do my best. Welcome everyone, I've done my best. So we've advertised everywhere, we can't advertise. Thank you all so much to all negative three of you who have tuned into this podcast at this point. This is a continuation of our theme of the week, which is Turkey ticking off everyone, uh, AKA everybody hates Turkey, except on Thanksgiving, part three. And part three is going to be all about the big picture. Uh, that is the big picture looking at everything we've talked about thus far in the previous two podcasts about what Turkey has been doing in the modern world, specifically the last 10 years. We could push it to 20, but the last 10 years, how the nation state of Turkey has been undergoing significant change, not only with its domestic policy, but specifically its foreign policy, and how that is affecting its role in the region and in the wider world, and how it is changing both the, its relationships with its allies as well as its enemies, because all of it is really up for grabs. For those of you that don't know me, I am the Plaid Avenger, coming at you with this three-part podcast on Turkey this week from Virginia Tech, home of the Fighting Hokies. Welcome to all of my folks from World Regional Geography class, both past and present. Any alumni out there, give me a shout as always. Tell me what year you graduated and if you are enjoying this newfangled approach to teaching, educating, and international affairs that I'm attempting here on Twitch, on Facebook, on YouTube, wherever the hell you're tuning in from. Uh, as I uh, suggested, for you first-timers who just accidentally popped into this, I've already done a couple of different talks on Turkey's changing role in the modern world uh, and that it's perhaps going on an independent path and perhaps it's pissing off lots of countries and ethnic groups. So we've done significant amount of work together already, my friends, talking in depth about regional rivalries across the Middle East, about historical animosities, about historical border changes, uh, all of these things which you have to at least understand a little bit about so that you can see what Turkey's doing right this second and understand it in much more detail, which we cannot say many Americans can. <laughs> anyway, welcome and here we go. Everybody hates Turkey. Part three, the big picture. So as I was uh, saying already, I have kind of started to talk about uh, Team Turk in what was, I think, almost three hours worth of podcasting already on Monday and Tuesday. I do apologize, by the way, uh, for anyone who tuned in last night trying to catch this last piece of the podcast. I got uh, irrevocably obtained at Blacksburg Wine Lab and could not break away due to other commitments which went long. Uh, but on the first part of this podcast, we had Turkey ticking off Greece uh, for a lot of historical baggage. Cyprus for some 40-year-old historical baggage, the EU for its territorial claims that Turkey is making quite confrontationally in the Eastern Mediterranean, 
and Armenia, a historic rivalry that goes back, oh, I don't know, hundreds to thousands of years. Hundreds to a thousand years, I should say. So that was episode one, mostly history-based. In episode two, we said, well, okay, who else is Turkey ticking off right now? And we talked a bit about the Kurdish situation, the Kurdish conundrum, the Syrian civil war, uh, the Iraq war, both of them, actually. Iraq wars part one and part two. Uh, and these things taken collectively uh, have aggravated and or ticked off uh, lots of different parties, including the Turkish Kurds, the Iraqi Kurds, the now Syrian Kurds. Uh, let's just say all the Kurds as well as Iraq, uh, Syria, whoever you think's in charge of it or should be in charge of it, uh, and even Russia and the United States, because the Syrian, situ the Iraq situation and uh, especially the Syrian situation, which is still ongoing, uh, have served to really, those are international conflicts with multiple players involved, and Turkey is one of those players, and the Turkish moves have aggravated and or insulted and or ticked off the Russians at some point and the Americans at some point, which is almost impossible to do in today's world. But the Turks are not playing around in the modern era. They have figured out ways to tick off all of the major world powers by doing just what they do best. And tonight we're going to kind of wrap up by saying, okay, we've talked a lot of specifics about history and current events and very, very, very current events, including things that are being blown up right now in a place called Azerbaijan. Uh, but we're gonna look at some overarching themes and summarize and I want you to understand this as I launch into this, hopefully only half hour podcast, that the Turks increasingly seem to be going it alone. And what I mean by that is that the uh, Turkey, the team Turk, as I like to refer to them as, it is a nation state. It is a regional power. I won't call it a world power, but it seems to be on the path to trying to become one. And it's a path you have to walk alone. Every world power has to become a world power on its own accord. You can't help another country become a world power. You can't give somebody a booster seat and then they become a world power because you gave them a lot. No. Uh, all world powers have allies and enemies and all world powers, even with their allies, are not keen that their allies become as strong as them. That's not the way states work. So Team Turk is going it alone because, in my assessment, it has been a regional power that has aspirations to become a greater regional power. And a greater regional power, perhaps world power, although that's a push, a greater regional power with a uh, bigger economy, a bigger military, uh, expanded foreign policy, uh, expanded reach across and outside of its own territorial realm. That doesn't mean militarily necessarily. Uh, you can expand your influence militarily by, you know, uh, the gun and the boot on someone's neck. You can also expand your influence outside of your own country with soft power, with economic power, with cultural power, with leadership power. So Turkey, in my assessment, as we start this final talk, is doing a little bit of both. And that's what makes it intriguing and why I spent a whole week talking about it. Lots of countries perhaps want to expand their soft power. What country doesn't want to influence more other countries or expand its economy or its economic reach or its cultural reach or become more popular or become more influential? Every country probably wants to do that, or I would say all countries want to do that. 
Not all countries also do it militarily. Turkey's in a very unique situation that they are doing both. They have military reach now beyond their borders and a strong desire for economic and cultural reach as well, an influential reach. Okay, what does that mean for its current allies, its current enemies, for the region it's in, and for the greater world? Let's now talk about these things. And I just ended that little spiel saying, hey, Turkey's quite unique because it's not only expanding perhaps its economic ties and cultural ties and influence peddling, but it's also doing military things. And so this is what I've mostly been focusing on. This one little map here, I believe it's from the New York Times here very recently. Uh, and the question of the, the author of this article was asking is, is Turkey's military overstretch or is Turkey overreaching? And it is odd. Uh, by the way, I'm not agreeing with this author who thinks that they are. Obviously, this author thinks that Turkey is overreaching and overdoing itself militarily. I'm not saying I am agreeing with that viewpoint. I just find it fascinating that they're even attempting it. Just think about this in the modern world. What other countries, now think about this seriously, what other states in the modern world here in the 21st century have their military troops in other countries. Think about it. What other states have their military engaged in conflicts in other parts of the world? The list is small and the list is mostly the big world powers. The United States obviously has troops all over the place and is involved in conflicts all over the place through hard and soft power. China is increasingly all over the place economically influence peddling, but also some military adventurism. A lot of uh, students hit me up recently saying, hey, I heard this big story this week that, that China was practicing its invasion of Taiwan or they declared war on Taiwan. That's a podcast for next week, by the way. That got so much play. I got so many questions about it. We're going to talk about that next week. Point being right now, China, a big power, is expanding its military and military adventurism beyond its borders. Russia, has long done this. Russia is currently involved in the Syrian situation and perhaps the Azerbaijani situation and perhaps a bunch of other places we don't even know about. This is to be expected of huge world powers. But when you start to ask the question of, okay, what other smaller countries or smaller powers have active military presence in other countries, that list is small. I can pick Saudi Arabia off the top of my head only because it's dabbling in Yemen. Uh, a border which has always been permeable, so that barely counts. Turkey is quite unique in that it's not in one place, it's not in two places, it's not in three places. It may be in four, five, or six different places right now. So you do have to consider Turkey as a significant, if not the most powerful regional power on the block. And for those of you that have taken world regions, hopefully you understand what I'm saying when I say regional power. The United States, China, Russia, those are global powers. They have global reach. Then you have a second tier of powerful entities on planet Earth, entities that have tremendous sway within the region that they're located. I would pick Brazil as a regional power player of, say, South America. Mexico is a regional power player of all the Central America, of Mexico, Central America, even the Caribbean, let's say. Uh, I could pick a place like Nigeria is a significant regional power player in West Africa, or you could say Africa as a whole. So there are regional powers that have limited reach 
in mostly in the geographic vicinity of where they're at. And Turkey, I think, right this second, has to be the most powerful regional power that's out there. It's not just doing stuff within its borders. It's doing stuff all over the place. And as this map is showing you, they have active military involvement currently in Libya, in Syria. It's not even lit up on this map, but I think we have to go ahead and light up uh, Nagorno-Karabakh, this region that uh, civil war is broken out in, in uh, present-day Azerbaijan. Turkey's involved in that. I actually think this map is mislabeled because I know for a fact that Turkey has an active military presence in northern Iraq. So they basically have, uh, you know, troops in northern Iraq, and they have for some time. So uh, you, you add that to the much more current events, by very current, actually almost everything I said is still a current event, but the current uh, conflicts that are starting to arise in the eastern Mediterranean around northern Cyprus, as well as the Aegean Sea, these are not conflicts yet, but they are places that the, the Turkish military has battleships floating around, confronting other countries' ships, and confronting ships from Greece, confronting ships from Israel, confronting ships from Egypt. So that's not a battle yet, so we can't say that's active military involvement, but when you start to engage your military to put pressure on other countries, you're only just a step away from active military involvement. So we've got a lot of action happening outside of Turkey by Turkey. And so here's a rapid review and perhaps a couple of new things uh, uh, that I'm going to kind of summarize from our last three hours of talk about this new path that Turkey is on. And I am saying that it's kind of starting to move to its, Turkey's starting to move to its own drumbeat. Uh, and it's increasingly not that interested or cares that much when, say, a country like the United States says, hey, we don't like what you're doing. Or the EU says, hey, we don't like what you're doing. We think you should top. Turkey increases. France has been very vocal lately saying, hey, Turkey, you shouldn't be doing that. You should stop then. And increasingly, Turkey's like, meh, we don't care what you think. We're Turkey, damn it. We're a regional power. We're going to do whatever the hell we want to do. Now, I've just split it up into five things. Again, I'm going to try to go over them rapidly because I said I was going to do a half hour and it's already been uh, 16 minutes. So we've got Turkey. Uh, point one, Turkey's fighting against Kurds pretty much everywhere. Uh, and that includes at least uh, two different countries now, possibly three. But let's say two. Hey, you know what? Let's call it three because Turkey is also uh, fighting against Kurdish uh, uh, extremists in its own country. So you have active engagement against Kurds. You have active engagement now that's just recently started up with Turkish troops being moved to this Karabakh fight. Uh, that's the one that's in Azerbaijan that's getting a bunch of press because it's an active fight where two sides are actively shelling each other and civilians are getting killed. Somewhere to the tune of 500 to 1,000 people have already been killed in the last couple weeks. Turkey's now involved in that too. Turkey's continued confrontational approach to Israel. This is something that I've not talked about yet. You may, if you're an Israel follower, may have seen reference to this in the last five years, especially where the relationship between these two countries has gone completely south. Uh, the next one is Turkey buying Russian-made weapons systems is feeding into some animosity with the United States, animosity with NATO, and animosity with Greece and some other NATO members that Turkey may be using these weapons systems against. That's the one I think is going to get hot soon. 
Uh, and finally, that plays into, why is that going to be hot soon? Because Turkey has some territorial claims in the Eastern Mediterranean, the Aegean Sea, that are going to turn into some sort of fighting, and I suggest soon. I hate to be that guy who acts like he knows everything. I don't. I totally admit my ignorance on many affairs, and I am, this is conjecture, but I'm usually pretty good at predictions, and I can't see how conflict doesn't happen in the Eastern Mediterranean in the next several months. I, I can't see how it doesn't occur. You have too many folks claiming too many things, and all of them are sending battleships and guns and weapons and aircraft into a crowded space. That's how wars start, my friend. So you heard it here first. The Eastern Mediterranean is going to get significantly hot, and I ain't talking temperature, uh, in the coming months, and it could spell the end of a lot of international relationships that a lot of us have taken for granted for a very long time. That's why I started paying attention to this whole Turkish situation to begin with. I'll end with that. But for now, how does each of these entities, each of these bullet points, change the game with the individual players involved, namely the allies, current allies and current enemies of Turkey? How is it changing the relationships based on the changing things that Turkey is doing in its foreign policy? First off, and we can go quickly through some of these since we've already talked about them uh, ad nauseum at length, <laughs> and that is that Turkey is fighting against Kurds everywhere. Uh, we, uh, I spent at least 45 minutes to an hour talking about the Kurdish situation, a little bit of Kurdish background. The Kurds are this group, uh, ethnic group of folks that are located in the highland areas, the mountainous terrain areas of Turkey, of uh, Syria, of Iran, of Iraq. And there are a lot of them, and they have for over a hundred years wanted to form their own nation state, their own independent sovereign state territory where they wouldn't get picked on. And for a hundred years, they've been denied of that and have been scattered amongst five, at least five, maybe six different other sovereign states. Turkey is the one that has had the most trouble with them. I should say Turkey and Iraq. Uh, both the Kurds in Turkey and the Kurds in Iraq have had... Um, significant uh, independence movements, significant radical movements. In the case of Turkey, a group called the PKK, which has been labeled as a terrorist organization because they've done lots of terrorist organization things over the last decades. Uh, the Turks have sought to put them down to uh, smash any sort of, not just terrorist organization uh, based in Kurdish territory, but any sort of independence movement that the Kurds may be working towards. The Turks aren't keen on that either, and perhaps for obvious reasons. If there's an independent Kurdistan, then doesn't that mean that they'll take parts of Turkey away from Turkey? That's Turkey's great fear. That's why they've been fighting so vigilantly against really any Kurdish movement of any sort. This is where it becomes problematic for us in the West, because us Westerners... Us liberal democratic folks, we look at the Kurds and say, hey, dudes, um, yeah, it's millions of people. They probably should have autonomy. They should have their own state. They should be allowed to choose the path of their own lives. Um, and, by the way, lots of Western states have promised to help the Kurds over the years, including the United States, which has 
promised to help them and lied to them straight to their faces, not once, not twice, but three times. Uh, the United States gets the Kurds to help them with every foreign policy endeavor that the United States seeks in the Middle East <laughs> with the promise that the United States is going to help them, and then the United States never does. Sorry, off on a side tangent already, but if you know any U.S. history uh, dealing with the Kurds, it's not a pretty story. Uh, so anyway, Turkey has been for decades pushing back fighting, knocking down, and maybe outright persecuting Kurds within Turkey, but also within Iraq. And this goes back to what I said about five minutes ago. Turkey actually has military camps. I won't call them bases, but Turkey has camps of military people inside of northern Iraq. Uh, and there's, they say, hey, we're here because there's this PKK, this Kurdish terrorist organization, which has blown up lots of people and lots of stuff in Turkey over the years. And so Turkey says, hey, this is about security. This is about our uh, domestic security, our international border security. So we have to keep fighting and putting down the PKK. And the PKK is not just located in Turkey. It's, it's harbored in northern Iraq. And by the way, the PKK was originally harbored in northern Syria. Another place Turkey has been fighting. <laughs> and is continuing to fight to this very day. So for as long as I can remember in current events, and this is at least 10 years, if not 15, since the United States invaded Iraq for the second time, uh, the Turks have taken it upon themselves to invade Iraqi territory and bomb suspected PKK uh, and other Kurdish terrorist sites. And then in the last five years, they started doing the same thing in Syria. So you have a situation where Turkey, for its own domestic security, uh, has been invading or bombing two other countries to put down what they feel is a threat to their security, this group called the PKK. Unfortunately, uh, not all Kurds are in the PKK. So there have been lots of civilian casualties, both within Turkey and outside of Turkey in these other states. Uh, and there's this little thing that, um, oh, this is just operations where the Turkish military in the last two years has invaded northern Syria and indeed now controls a roughly 20-mile zone within Syria. And it looks like it's going to hold on to that territory whether Syria gets its act together or not. So you have an active Turkish military presence in two other sovereign states. Both of those sovereign states have been in continuous states of civil war for a decade and are on shaky ground. Nonetheless, Turkey has military troops in states other than Turkey, almost on a permanent basis now. And again, they're mostly saying we're doing this for security reasons because the PKK is dangerous and we need them to not be around. But I would say, uh, and this is, again, we're talking about big picture stuff. I would say the Turkish military is not leaving northern Iraq nor leaving northern Syria anytime soon. Even if the PKK were to renounce its ways, even if the PKK disbanded, even if it got completely wiped out by the Turkish military, the Turkish military is not leaving Iraq nor northern Syria anytime soon because Turkey's other goal in suppressing these Kurdish populations is that Turkey lives in mortal fear of any of them becoming an independent state, even in Northern Iraq. And 
the Kurds in northern Iraq are the best situated group of Kurds to actually declare independence and to actually be able to maintain a separate sovereign state and run it. They have revenue from oil. They've actually been almost self-sovereign sustaining for over a decade. Uh, ever since Saddam Hussein uh, was put down and put away and put in a grave, the Kurds have been in northern Iraq have been running their own affairs uh, quite fine and dandy all by themselves. Thank you very much. So you might be asking, well, what's that got to do with Turkey, though? Why would Turkey care if the Kurds in Iraq suddenly become declare independence and are able to defend their independence from the rest of Iraq? Uh, Turkey's pretty terrified of that situation, even if it has nothing to do with Turkey, because they think it does. They say, hey, look, if the Kurds in Iraq become independent, that will embolden and strengthen their situation to have terrorist actions and pro-independence actions next door in Turkey. That's our country. And Turkey says the same thing about Syria. They're going to maintain this border zone within Syria with a military presence because they don't want any Kurds in Syria to get too uppity and try to declare independent parts of Syria under a Kurdistan state either. So no matter what, this is going to be a situation that likely is going to happen for the rest of our lives. They're going, Turkey is going to continue to try to make sure that the PKK doesn't get anywhere and that it, even Kurdish sovereignty gets nowhere. Again, to restate, they're terrified that any free Kurdistan will empower Kurds within Southeast Turkey, and there's a lot of them, to follow suit and work harder and fight harder for a free Kurdistan within Turkey. That makes sense? So it's a domestic terrorism thing, but it's also a territorial integrity thing for the Turkish military. I should say for the Turkish government. They ain't going anywhere anytime soon. Now, what effect does that have on its allies? Well, well what effect does it have on the Kurds, for starters? Well, they're screwed. I think you have to be pragmatic at some point, and the Kurds have perhaps a God-given right, if you believe in such things, to be a free and independent people and have their own state. But at some point, you have to be pragmatic and look at the realism, uh, uh, the realistic outcome. Can, could that happen? Right now, I say no. I can't imagine Turkey with this new assertive attitude is not going to allow this. Kurds have not been able to carve out a state for themselves up to this point, And this is before Turkey was this aggressive about its border situation. Before it's been this aggressive. So I think that the idea of a free and independent Kurdistan, you never say never, I guess, uh, but it's kind of dead for the foreseeable future. Even if Iraq collapses, which, you know what, that's 50-50. Even if Iraq collapses into chaos, the Kurds will have it, its best situation ever to declare independence and be able to maintain it, except for that Turkey won't let them. And you may see that if Iraq starts to disintegrate and the Kurds declare a separate state and then the Sunnis will declare a separate state, the Sunni Arabs and the West will declare a separate state, and then the Shia uh, 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 folks, uh, Shia Iraqis in the East may declare an independent separate state. If that, Even if that were to occur, uh, Turkey, I believe, would likely beef up its military presence in northern Iraq and may even claim it. You heard that here first, too. The Turks may just say, nope, we're not going to allow for a free Kurdistan on our border, so we're just going to absorb northern Iraq. Now, that's a whole other set of problems, but it's, it's not out of the realm of possibilities. 
And given the assertiveness of Turkish foreign policy, I think it's highly likely. This is the kind of speculation I like to talk about, mostly because it just all makes us smarter. If you understand what I'm saying, you won't be that surprised when you see events unfold. Even if they don't unfold the way that I'm predicting, they'll unfold somewhere close to that. So because of this, the Kurds and all of their allies are going to be none too happy with Turkey in the foreseeable future. This includes the United States, because the other problematic part of this that I mentioned last podcast was that the United States has long used the Kurds, quite frankly, but used them to help fight battles in the, United, uh, in the Middle East. The Kurds were a useful tool that the United States armed and trained to fight against Saddam Hussein. The Kurds were a useful tool that the United States helped train and, and arm weapons to fight against uh, uh, the Assad regime in Syria, which they still are. So these are active things, and the United States has been caught in this vice of, well, Turkey's our friend, but the Kurds are our friends, and the Kurds are actually on the ground fighting and doing stuff we want, but then Turkey's persecuting and perhaps attacking those same troops that we're helping fund. The, did you need the Middle East to be more complicated? This is just one thing I'm talking about. Look how complicated this affair is just with the Kurds. So the United States is going to be in, in, in an increasing state of friction with the Turkish government, if for nothing else, what happens with the Kurds. And again, I'm saying not much is going to change from the way it is right this second. Uh, will the Kurds go quietly, by the way, uh, if... If Iraq crumbles or if the Assad regime crumbles and you actually have either Iraq or Syria in a state of chaos that all bets are off and anybody who can defend the territory gets to claim a state, the Kurds can do it. But will they go quietly if that doesn't happen? No, you're probably still going to see a lot of independence movements and perhaps terrorist movements within Kurdistan. But even if they get to declare an independent state, will they go quietly if Turkey doesn't allow it? I don't think that's going to happen either. So friction in this area, no matter what, and now friction with Kurdish allies, including the United States. Cool. And as I also referenced last podcast, Turkey is on the opposite side of Russia in the whole Syrian civil war. So Turkey supports one side of that uh, of the Syrian civil war, the side which wants to overthrow the Assad, uh, President Assad's regime of Syria. And Russia has been there propping up the Assad regime. So again, Turkey's in this quite unique spot in today's modern world that it simultaneously pisses off the United States and Russia. <laughs> and you're like, wow, you should almost win an award for that. It's hard to piss off both sides. But we're not done. That was just point one. Let's get to point two. Uh, Turkey is now being accused, and this is a little more speculative because I believe it's happening, and, and enough world watchers believe it's happening, but it's hard to tell in new wars that are just now breaking out, and they're chaotic, and this another war in the mountains. It's hard to get to, it's hard to access, and it's a war, and it's hard to tell who's doing what and what the hell's going on. But Turkey has come under some international disdain as of late, because of the whole uh, Karabakh uh, war, Nagorno-Karabakh, this little region within modern-day Azerbaijan that is composed mostly of ethnic Armenians. So it has a natural affiliation and tie to Armenia, which is supporting it to help its fellow ethnic Armenians 
who were located in a separate little province called Nagorno-Karabakh that's actually contained within Azerbaijan. Armenians are ethnically Armenian and they're Christian. Azerbaijanis are ethnically Turkic, not Turkish, Turkic, and Muslim. This is a contested little area that I'll let you go watch the hour and a half podcast I did on it on Monday night if you want all the details. Or actually, no, that was last week. I forgot. I did the Nagorno-Karabakh thing for an hour and a half last week talking about what the whole situation was about and how it evolved historically and how it got hot today. But it broke out into active warfare again after a very quiet period for about a decade and a half. And both sides claim the other side did something. And all I want you to know for now is that these two groups of people are fighting over this little chunk of mountainous land uh, in the Caucasus mountain range. And the Russians are friendly with the Armenians and actually have a military base in Armenia. And the Turks are quite friendly and allies of Azerbaijan. And remember, I just referenced the Azerbaijanis are ethnically Turkic, not Turkish, Turkic. And so you have a natural ethnic affiliation. The Turkic peoples are folks that are from originally from Central Asia. Uh, Genghis Khan, the, the Khans, the Mongolians, over to the Kazakhs, over to the Tajiks. All these folks are, they're different ethnic groups, but from one mother ethnic group called Turkic. They share an ethnic bond or ethnic background and, and their languages are all related. The Turkish people who are currently in the state of Turkey are Turkic based people that moved from Central Asia all the way through into modern day Turkey. This is over the course of the last thousand years. So Turkey has a natural inclination and affiliation with the Aziris, a Turkic-based group, who also happens to be Muslim. So that's why these two countries are facing off over this little territory. It's a territorial, you know, fight. That's what the basis of it is. But the teams that I've now highlighted help you understand the two sides in the fight and why their allies are who they are. So the Russians have a natural Orthodox Christian affiliation with the Armenians, and the Turks have this ethnic and Muslim tie to the Azerbaijanis. What's been going on that's been causing fury in the rest of the world, mostly the West, is that Turkey has now been accused with some significant evidence of moving some mercenary troops from Syria where Turkey has been sending Turkish mercenary forces in to fight against Kurds and to fight against the regime of uh, President Assad. Turkey's moving those troops in an active war over to this other active war to help out its Azeri friends. And this has, again, basically the international uh, take on this from France, from the EU, from the United States, from Russia, from the United Nations. Everyone has said, dudes, why are you pouring gasoline on this fire, uh, in this conflict in the middle of the mountains? Let it play itself out. Everyone in the world is suing for peace and saying, hey, everybody should calm down. And Turkey has outright, outright said, we don't care about peace. We're going to help our Aziri brothers liberate this place from the Armenians, and we're going to do it with money and guns. So this, again flies in the face of conventional politicking. For all of my lifetime, since World War II, countries at least 
say out loud, oh, no, 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 we're for peace. No, we should work things out. We should go to the United Nations. We, we should, uh, all of us should work together to quell this conflict. This is kind of new that you have a country saying, I don't give a shit about what everybody else says. We're going to fan the flames of this and we are picking a side and we're going to help that side. Now, that's the way it worked for most of human history, but not so much in the modern world. So Turkey is really, I won't say an uncharted ground here, but it's being very bellicose. That's odd for states here in the modern world. We're all very gentlemanly now. Or ladylike, I don't know, ladylike always seems sexist, but we're all very uh, cosmopolitan now, and we we like to have meetings about things. And so you don't have this attitude of like, hell no, we're throwing in the fight. We're going to get him out of this fight. We're going to help our buddies win. It's like, whoa, I haven't heard anybody say that for a while. So that's intriguing. And again, it's raising the dander of most of Team West, but even Russia. Because again, Russia's like, hey, dudes. Armenia is our friend, and we even have a military base there, but we're trying not to throw gasoline on this fire. The Russians are saying, we're trying to not get involved in this. Everybody should take a step back and chill out. And Turkey's saying, nope, don't think so. <laughs> so what, what effect does this have on enemies, allies, and the wider world? Well, just to summarize what I was just spouting about, with some passion, I might add, this is kind of a new game. You don't really have um, nation states, or I should say sovereign states in today's world, who openly pick sides and just cast their lot in and say, we're all in, we're going to help win a war in a country that has nothing to do with us. It's not how it's done anymore. So this is new ground, and it's going to cause consternation with all of the civilized world. That's the term I should have said earlier, not gentlemanly-like or ladylike. Civilized. The civilized world doesn't get involved in fights. It tries to stop fights. Turkey doesn't. So Turkey making this move does a couple of very interesting things. It kind of throws, you know, all bets are off for how other countries in the future might follow this lead, including even the United States. The United States may come out tomorrow and say, by the way, China's pissing us off, so we're going to go arm Taiwan. Because why not? I'm just going to do what I want to do. That may be another podcast right there, too. You, this may be the, the, uh, the beginning of an era of much more bellicose uh, moves and verbiage from world leaders. Uh, and so Turkey is going to lose some... I won't say credibility, uh, but perhaps a little bit of civil world uh, respect from the civilized world. Namely, the EU does not like this. And by the way, the EU hopefully won't follow this path because that's how the EU got involved in World War One and World War Two was countries being bellicose and going to fight for other countries who got into a skirmish. Again, see World War One and World War Two. So. The EU is none too happy about this. The United Nations as a whole uh, is not happy about this. The United States is very unhappy about this because they're like, dudes, what are you doing? We have Armenians in America, and there's a strong Armenian lobby in America. We, and, and we're in the middle of an election cycle. We don't want to pay attention to this. So this is going to cause alarm. And again, not a little bit of loss of faith uh, from the Western countries, but even Russia, in dealing with 
Ankara in the future of negotiations. How about its allies, though? I mean, actually, a lot of those people I just named used to be Turkish allies. So that's why I wondered this podcast is like, are these folks going to be allies with Turkey for much longer? It's, it's becoming a strained relationship. Who does it help, though? Or who, I should say, how does it affect other relations with Turkey? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to summarize my last slide with this, but I think, we're, I think one of Turkey's primary reasons for doing this is because it sees itself as a leader, not just in its own region, but further afield. And what I mean by this is I think that Turkey coming to help defend or help liberate or help this Azerbaijan claim, reclaim a piece of territory is setting up Turkey as a country that is a leader that's helping Muslim states. And if you want to make it even more real than that, Turkey is becoming a natural leader that's helping Turkic states. So what you're going to see is Turkey saying, hey, we're the natural leader of our fellow Turkic peoples, which pushes its influence and its respect and street cred into Central Asia and further. And when you start talking about Turkey saying, hey, look, we're going to help a Muslim country defend its territory from these Christian Armenians, now you have Turkey setting itself up as a leader and a powerful leader of Muslim folks. A theme we'll come back to. In fact, will I come back to it or will I get to it in just a minute? I think I get to do it just a minute when I talk about Israel. So Turkey's military adventures. Uh, now I've only talked about one, two. It's third place where there's active military troops. And by the way, Turkey's saying, that's not us. We don't know who those armed, trained mercenaries who speak Turkish. We don't know who they are who just showed up in Nagorno-Karabakh. <laughs> this is the fun new way that countries... Uh, participate in war while covering their bases that they can pretend like they're not participating in war. So it's not active Turkish military that's helping out in Nagorno-Karabakh. It's just some crazy Turkish people who are armed to the teeth and are really good at fighting who happen to be helping out in Nagorno-Karabakh. We call them mercenaries, and they're Turkish mercenaries. So this uh, little uh, story right here is how Turkey's military adventurism decreases freedom at home. Uh, it's uh, uh, referencing specifically the uh, Nagorno-Karabakh issue, this quote-unquote breakaway Armenian enclave in Azerbaijan. Uh, Turkey strongly supports Azerbaijan, which shares ethnic bonds, and we could also say religious bonds. And President Recep Tayyip Erdogan dismissed global calls for a ceasefire. Just dismissed. Talk to the Erdogan hand. Everybody else is saying peace. And I ain't saying that at all. Uh, and this is an area, by the way, for your, our, you technology-inclined folks, that this is a, the, one of the most active new brands of warfare. The drone technology being employed there is significant, and it's outright, and it's turning into a full-on drone war because it's a very mountainous area. So the Turks have been helping Azerbaijan build up their military for years to decades already. Uh, and the Turks are most certainly supplying some of the weapons. And some of the weapons are drones that both sides, by the way, are starting to employ against civilian populations. So this is a, another interesting thing about this conflict of, oh, 
this is the new 21st century warfare. You know, there are tanks there and there are jets there, but most of the deaths so far are happening by drones on both sides. Okay, and the end little line to this is, this strategy is in line with Mr. Erdogan's government's decision to increase their country's military footprint abroad. And they're listing here Syria, Libya, Eastern Mediterranean to enhance Turkey's position as a regional power. A term I keep coming back to, a regional power that perhaps has ambitions of becoming more than just a regional power. Not a world power yet, but how do you become a world power? You expand beyond your region first. And that to me is what Turkey is doing. Now, I said, hey, I'm going to say something more about Turkey becoming a leader, perhaps, of the Islamic world. And I don't mean that in terms of, hey, they're going to become more religious than everybody else, or they're going to become more pious than everybody else. No, no, no. Learn this and learn this now. Turkey is becoming a the most respected country in the world that is overwhelmingly of uh, Muslim faith. Turkey so far is not a Islamic republic. It's not a state that's run by religion. It's a semi-democratic state where most members of the population happen to be Islamic. And Turkey is becoming a role model to other Islam-dominated states of the world because of its commitment to Islamic issues and standing up for Islamic issues and self-proclaiming that it's a natural leader on Islamic issues. And what do I mean by that? Well, now we'll talk about Israel for just a minute. And I don't have a whole lot to say about Israel. However, I do want to point out this one news story here in the upper left corner. Israeli military and intelligence assessments see Turkey as growing threat. This is one of many stories I have been following over the course of the last months to years. Iran is the existential threat that Israel fears the most. Virtually all the Arab states in the Middle East really hate Iran. Almost everyone around Iran really mistrusts and doesn't like Iran. Nothing new there. However, a lot of folks in Israel and perhaps some Arab states are starting to say, hey, we don't like Iran, but Turkey is the one we're starting to get more worried about in the future because of all the things I've talked about so far and because it is an aspiring regional power and again, aspiring perhaps beyond its regional ambitions. So. Lots of folks saying, hey, that's the country that perhaps is going to threaten us a little bit more in the very near future than even Iran does. And now these other stories kind of uh, support that. Uh, Erdogan, this is Recep Tayyip Erdogan, the president of uh, Turkey, who's basically been in charge of Turkey for almost two decades. It's been 18 years, I believe, that uh, Recep, uh, Recep, Recep Erdogan has been either the prime minister or the president and if you don't know who uh, Recep is, just look. He's centered in all of these pictures I'm showing you here. And he has turned Turkey from a very secular state into, into a, a, he's turned Turkey from a secular democracy where the military provided a check on the government to a Turkey that's still kind of secular, but much more inclining towards religion in politics uh, and where the military is neutered and, and the military is no longer a check on the government's power. Uh, and he's turned it into more of an autocratic state. Well, dictator is still a bit of a strong word, 
but Turkey is almost not a democracy anymore. Recep Erdogan has pulled a lot of the power of the state apparatus to himself. Uh, it's not really a free press in Turkey anymore. In fact, I think Turkey jails as many journalists as China does now, or maybe Turkey's number one at jailing journalists. So it, you can't call it a free information state. It's hard to see how they're functioning democracy when his power is all-encompassing. He controls all aspects of the military, controls all aspects of the voting process. If they don't like the way a vote goes, his government just says, well, redo. We didn't win it, so we're going to redo it. Something they just did a couple years ago. And people are like, whoa, you're supposed to be a democracy. So Recep has done many things to turn Turkey from one type of state to something closer to a one-party state that's now bordering on becoming a bit more religious than most Westerners are comfortable with. Well, what's that got to do with Israel? Because the other thing that uh, Recep has done since he's been in power is stand pretty staunchly against Israeli politics, uh, especially when it comes to the Palestinian situation. So these stories, Erdogan calls on Muslim countries to unite and confront Israel. He didn't say this militarily, but he's saying, hey, look, there's this Palestinian issue in Israel. Israel basically is... Uh, running concentration camps where all the Palestinians are stuck in them. They don't have rights. Uh, they've been screwed for going on 50 years. Or has it been 60 years now? Jeez, it's going on 60 years. So while other um, countries, and we can get to some other states here that you've heard about, and I've actually podcasted about this semester, while some other Arab states are starting to make peace with Israel, Every time that happened, Turkey has come out and said, oh, what a bunch of jerks these Arab states are. Turkey still staunchly is trying to defend the Palestinians. We're going to stand up for their rights and stand against Israeli aggression against Palestine. And this is, again, a very unique path that Turkey's on. For decades, it was Arab states that refused to recognize Israel. By the way, in an ironic twist of fate, Turkey recognizes the state of Israel. They did early on. Turkey has been a NATO member. Turkey wanted to get into the EU. Turkey has been very pro-Western, and as such, Turkey recognized Israel a long time ago. It recognized Israel's right to exist. They have diplomatic relations. What I'm saying here is that Turkey now is saying, hey, we don't like what Israel's doing, and we, unlike the Arab states who have long not recognized Israel, in uh, a protest for the existence of Israel, but also protest against the Palestinian situation that the Israelis are putting the Palestinians in, the Arab states have long not done anything, okay? But suddenly, the UAE and Bahrain have recognized Israel and are establishing diplomatic relations with Israel. And Turkey has come out and said, what a sham. These Arab states are a total sham looking at... Look at these guys. They have done nothing for decades to help the Palestinian peoples, and now they're cozying up with Israel. Well, isn't that nice for them? He has been quite vocal, even to threatening to suspend diplomatic ties with the UAE, ratcheted up tensions with Saudi Arabia. Uh, uh, this is quite unique, and it goes against the grain of what almost all other states are doing in the region. Again, for those of you that are just tuning in, or if you're super pro-Israel or super pro-Jewish or super pro-Palestinian. I'm not talking about the issue. I'm not saying anybody's right nor wrong. Everybody's right and everybody's wrong as far as I'm concerned when it comes to the Palestinian issue. I'm not talking about the issue. I'm saying Turkey's approach and its bellicose 
tone about the Palestinian situation, they almost are the only ones saying this right now. This is what I'm talking about. This is what's making Turkey very unique in the modern world. You're like, whoa, everybody else is suddenly becoming nicer to Israel except Turkey. And you got to think, okay, well, who does that piss off? Well, obviously Israel, who I've just now mentioned some military analysts, and not all, by the way. I'm not saying the state of Israel has come out and suggested that Turkey's going to be their number one enemy, but there are analysts in Israel, in the defense uh, uh, departments of Israel, who are saying, yeah, we're starting to worry more about Turkey as opposed to Iran. Iran may be contained soon. Iran may crumble soon. Turkey's getting stronger right now, and that's why they're saying it's a potential threat in the future more than in the past. Recep, uh, Recep Erdogan, for years, uh, has not only supported the Palestinian cause, but sent aid to the Palestinians, uh, attempted aid at one point where they sent a Turkish ship, went to Gaza Strip to try to de deliver aid, and it was intercepted and fired upon by an Israeli ship. I believe that was in 2015. That's when Israeli-Palestinian, I'm sorry, Israeli-Turkish uh, relations went south, and they've, they've, been, they've sucked worse ever since. This is why Erdogan continues to be more bellicose as every day goes by. He's got nothing to lose because he is getting to now be seen as a Muslim leader, a strong Muslim leader. Doesn't matter if he's in Turkey or Saudi Arabia or Morocco. He's a Muslim, and he's a strong Muslim leader who is standing up against Israel and also standing up against all Israeli allies by default, which would be the United States and the EU and all the Western world. So again, I'm not, uh, I, I want to always keep checking you if anybody's particularly passionate about some of these uh, topics. I'm not uh, 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 patting Erdogan on the back for doing this. I'm not saying I think, I think he's great for doing this. What I want you to understand is lots of Muslims think he's great for doing this. And he's in an overwhelmingly Muslim region so he is starting to be seen as, wow, he's the only one who's doing things. For right or wrong, for better or worse, maybe his words will have no effect whatsoever on the Palestinian situation. They haven't so far. Uh, but the fact that he's standing up for them makes him respected in many quarters of the Muslim world. And what I mean by that is there are Arab Muslims who like Erdogan. Uh, there are Azerbaijani Muslims who like Erdogan. There are Kazakhi and Moroccan and Libyan Muslims who like Erdogan because they see him as a powerful Muslim leader who goes against the grain and doesn't care to it doesn't care about standing up to Israel, standing up to Western powers, standing up to whoever. Does that make sense? And this also uh, is going to harden the uh, animosities between Turkey and the other Arab states, which Turkey routinely makes fun of. So I should say Turkey, Erdogan. Erdogan routinely attacks other Arab states for being weak, for being corrupt, uh, for not sticking up for the Palestinians, for giving in to Israel, which is now what's happening with all of these other Arab states recognizing the state of Israel. That is a kind of big deal. It empowers Turkey, at least in this issue, on this issue with other Muslim folks around the world. But we're way out of time as always. I said a half hour. Of course I lied. Is this bad? Should I stop? I'm two, I'm two bullet points away. I don't have any questions from anybody. Although, hold on. Nerds are people too. Said, hey, Prof, took your world reach since 2015, 2016, graduated 2016. 
My roommate and I have been having an awesome time watching your podcast. Well, thank you. Nerds are people too. And your roommate. Let's get to bullet point four though. Out of five, so we're getting close to the end. And I've actually talked about a lot of these issues already so I can summarize even more rapidly. The other thing that's really important since you're from, most of you people watching this are from the United States, is that Turkey's bought a bunch of Russian-based weapons. <laughs> and mostly um, detection defense weapons. So radar systems, anti-missile, missile defense systems. So you see a missile coming and you have a missile and your missile blows up their missile. Turkey has been purchasing equipment from Russia. Okay. Uh, <laughs> This one perhaps is a whole podcast in and of itself, but you can keep it brief because I think you may understand very quickly how this pisses the living hell out of the United States of America, including, this is a headline from, I think, four days ago, U.S. Senators push for Turkey sanctions after reports Ankara used Russian system to detect U.S.-made jets. So you, this is really pushing some buttons now. Turkey is a member of NATO the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, a defense pact of, I don't know, let's say 20-odd countries, the United States, Canada, uh, France, the UK, virtually all of Europe, who work together to fight against common enemies. Turkey's in this group. The reason NATO was formed was because of Russia. All right, so right there, you can almost stop right there and be like, okay, Turkey, really, do you not see a conflict of interest here? You're in a defense group that was formed to counter Russia, and you're buying Russian-made weapons that may help detect NATO allies' aircraft and ships, and maybe you're buying weapons that will help kill NATO allied weapons and ships. Dudes, dude, I'm not sure there could be a more concise conflict of interest, perhaps ever. Not in warfare. So this has caused significant consternation in the United States and NATO. And they've been using them in the last couple few weeks, which is why they're starting to get press on this. What do you mean using them? Well, and here's some other stories that I just found today. Turkey to buy more Russian missile uh, defense systems despite U.S. sanctions threat that those senators just brought up. Russians built a NATO spec identification friend or foe system for Turkey's S-400 batteries. S-400 batteries are not batteries like you put in your uh, Walkman. These are batteries of uh, missiles. <laughs> That's what you're seeing in the pictures right there. So what you have is the Russians who have spent their whole lives figuring out Western technology to be able to detect it and destroy it. Again, think about that. The Russians have spent their entire defense lives of the entire Cold War figuring out how to detect and destroy Western technologies. And Turkey is buying these exact weapons, I'll say it one more time, that were built to detect and destroy Western systems, Western aircraft and Western ships and Western missiles. And NATO's a... I'm sorry, Turkey is a NATO member. Okay. Uh, problematic. And, oh, does a question come up? Oh, okay, I'll take a question before I get, I've already got to number five. I'm almost wrapping up. Swear to God, I'm pretty close. Uh, Hitman Thunder says, hey, Prof, if a country is in multiple international groups that regulate the economy and other rules, how, do, uh, how does sort these things out? 
we've not been tested on this until now. And this, again, my friends, I swear to God, my heart's getting ready to explode. I, my blood pressure is so freaking high right now. Not because I'm angry, because I'm excited. Because I'm looking at this saying, this is why I chose to spend a whole week on Turkey. This is a big deal, my friends. This is a very big deal. Turkey's doing this thing, which is going to test international systems like they've never been tested before. We don't know. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. What was your name? Something Hunter? I, I, I don't know what happens when a NATO country attacks another NATO country. It's never happened. It's never happened. But it might be getting ready to happen now because of Turkey. Again, I got to bring my blood pressure down. I'm not saying this because I'm angry at Turkey. I am a dispassionate international observer of things. I'm saying it's exciting because this is a big shakedown. Things that I have taken for granted as an international assessor uh, my whole life are being called into question. And this is mostly about NATO and mostly about international alliances. That's why this whole wrap-up podcast here is about how is this affecting alliances that we have taken for granted for 60 years. Since the end of World War II, the world has been a certain way. And yeah, the Soviet Union collapsed and then things got a little bit different, but alliances really didn't change much. We are now in an era where major alliances are up for grabs, and this is the biggest one. If this unravels, this is a very big deal for NATO. It's actually a big deal for Turkey, too, with ramifications that they might not have thought through yet. But I'll keep on that line and for a second uh, more, but let me answer a couple more questions. Uh, Vicky Lars says, keep going. I mean, at this point, oh, because I said I could stop. Uh, Vicky Lars also says, so Russia is still willing to sell the country that they are also basically in a proxy war with weapons. Another great intriguing part of this equation. Everybody sells weapons to everybody now because money is money because money talks and bullshit walks as the old phrase goes. So yes, Vicky, great assessment there. Russia was kind of cozying up to Turkey not that long ago. They were kind of on the same side of most conflicts. And as Turkey was asserting itself more and perhaps pissing off the United States more and perhaps pissing off NATO more, Russia's like, all, Russia's all about it. They're like, oh my God, yeah. Russia rubs its hands with glee anytime there are fissures or cracks or frictions or tensions within the EU or NATO or within the United States. Russia loves the United States current election debacle. Loves it. This is what Russia lives for, diplomatically speaking. Russia loves, loves playing people off other people. Maybe all states do, but Russia's really good at it. Uh, and so Russia feels like part of its natural defense, part of what keeps Russia independent, part of what keeps Russia strong, part of what keeps Russia defensible is that everybody else is in chaos. If everybody else is in chaos, they ain't got time to gang up on Russia. This has got to be Russia's ploy here in the last, oh shit, 30 years since the end of the Cold War. And they're, they've gotten exceptionally good at it. So back to your point, why would they sell these weapons to Turkey? They sold the weapons to Turkey because they know it helps cause friction within NATO. They love it. Russia loves it. Uh, and they're Russian, they're Russian built systems. So it, uh, there's no technological disadvantage to Russia giving these or selling these to Turkey because Turkey can't turn back around and use them on Russia. 
You understand why? Because these systems are built to detect Western stuff, not Russian stuff. So Russia has no problem selling these particular weapons, but it is intriguing that Russia now finds itself back at odds with Turkey over the Nagorno-Karabakh issue, <laughs> or they may be coming to blows with Turkey over that little enclave, although probably not. That's what we call a proxy war. Both sides will funnel in money and guns and weapons to the players, but they're probably not themselves going to get involved. Perhaps. That's the likely. That conflict's a little too isolated and small for Turkey to want to go up head-to-head -head against Russia, and vice versa. However, the things that are playing out that might, might end up causing Russia and Turkey to go at it are the conflict in uh, Syria, which actually is starting to wrap up, and Russia's side is winning. That's the President Assad government side is winning that civil war. So no one knows how much more bellicose Turkey is going to continue to be once the Assad regime reclaims power over the entire place, which will probably happen in the next two to three months. Sorry, I'm a great predictor of things. So we don't know how hard Turkey's going to go once they, their side is lost in the Syrian civil war. But other places are going to get a lot hotter that have nothing to do with Russia. So Russia's overall gain by selling these weapons to Turkey is still a plus. Yes, question. Uh, this, this is from uh, some statements from your Facebook. Uh, Michael Corley said, I believe they were considering not letting Turkey have the S-35 at some point because they bought arms from Russia. Yes, Michael on Facebook says that the United States was thinking that they're not going to sell Turkey the F-35s because they bought these systems from Russia. You're absolutely correct. In fact, they're... It's being kind of leaked that there might have been now almost a two-year-long embargo on selling any weapons to Turkey that I had not heard about until I just, I've, I've seen hints of it. I don't even know if it's true, uh, but it would make sense that it is true because the, the Turks bought these weapons about two years ago. So the United States is not going to be keen to sell Turkey much more advanced weaponry if that weaponry might be used against the United States' allies. Also, um, Brett Wolgamuth said Turkey is uh, Turkey's second largest NATO air force. And then follow up, how is Turkey going to pay for all these possible expansionist plans, new pipeline, shipping tax? Yeah, so uh, uh, Brett Wolgamuth says uh, uh, very keenly that this is not to be overlooked, that Turkey has a significant military. I, You know, the opening slide I showed you was, Oh, is the Turkish military overextending itself? Well, it's pretty significant. It certainly has the one of the best trained, likely the biggest, but one of the best trains and one of the best equipped militaries in the Middle East. Lots of other Arab countries are catching up. Iran is no a shirker itself, by the way. They're Persians, not Arab, but the Iran military is significant, and they're probably closing in on making a nuclear weapon soon, which will be a game changer. Uh, but Arab, the Arab states, for the most part in the last 100 years, have not had really big military or not that militarily uh, savvy and have bought lots of weapons. In fact, they've been buying weapons like Bonzo Bananas in the last decade or two. So the United States has made billions, nay, trillions, selling weapons to Arab states and Turkey. And now Turkey's buying weapons also from Russia. So lots and lots and lots of weapons have been going in this place. The point being, uh, uh, the Wilgamuth is right, 
Turkey has a significant air force, likely the, I think you said the second biggest air force of a NATO country. Not surprising to me. I, I don't know that as a fact. I'm willing to accept that. Uh, in large part because the United States has been helping them since 1952 when they joined NATO, when Turkey joined NATO. The United States has military bases. The United States has air force bases in Turkey. The United States has relied on Turkey heavily for all of its operations in everything going on in the Middle East. That's another thing you got to think about. This is a game changer because if Turkey is now an unreliable partner, is the United States going to keep its air bases there? And if it doesn't, then the United States is basically relinquishing most power it has across Middle Eastern affairs. So there's a ripple effect of these things. And that's why I get my blood pressure up about talking about Turkey's movements in a more independent direction have repercussions far beyond the state of Turkey, all the way to significantly impacting U.S. foreign policy. So yes, Turkey is a significant military, a, the second biggest air force of NATO countries, and the United States would definitely be the first. Uh, the United States has relied heavily on its NATO membership and its U.S. air bases in Turkey for a variety of things in the region. And that all is now up for question. And then the follow-up question from uh, Brian was, and how is Turkey paying for all this? That's the rub. That's where things take a slight turn and Turkey is, is not in a powerful position as it is portraying itself to be in. Turkey has a good economy. I wouldn't say it's a great economy. Turkey has a highly developing economy. I wouldn't call Turkey a developed economy, fully developed. So Turkey's doing okay, but it's not, a, it might be a top 20 economy on planet earth, but it ain't a top 10 and it ain't going to be anytime soon. They produce agricultural products. They produce manufactured goods. They might produce a lot of the finished goods and even technologies that go into their militaries, but they don't develop them all as evidenced by them buying weapons from everybody else. So it, they, they're an okay economy, but they're not a great economy. And thus, the main crux of that story that the New York Times writer was uh, writing about was, can they afford this? Can they, literally, can they afford this economically to become a power exerting influence far and beyond where they're at? And can they afford it, you know, politically? Can they afford to lose allies? Can they afford to not be in NATO? And these are all intriguing questions that are all related, obviously. And Brian, to your point, specific point about the, I'm sorry? Brett, Brett, Brett to your point, um, I don't know how Turkey's paying for a lot of things. I've heard their economy is doing okay even during COVID, but it goes up and down and it's not a powerhouse economy by any stretch of the imagination. And again, you have to look at big picture stuff, which is what diplomats do and bureaucrats and foreign policy analysts. If Turkey isolates itself so hard and pisses off so many people, that affects them economically. Russia is one of their biggest trading partners right now. The EU is another big trading partner right now. And if you start to piss off all the people you trade with, guess what? They don't want to buy you shit anymore. It's really quite elemental, but politicians get caught up in their own rhetoric. And, and by the way, Donald Trump is a perfect one. Xi Jinping is another one. These uh, autocrats or semi-dictators or full-on dictators, they're all about, we're country's great, we can do anything. And it's like, well, 
Sure you can. You can try, but in a global interconnected economy, you can't do things overnight. And if you try to go it alone starting tomorrow, you're going to find out real quick all the stuff your economy doesn't do well and all the things you don't possess and all the stuff you're lacking. So to, to isolate yourself either because America first or to isolate yourself because Turkey first and we're going to become a regional power, it has consequences even economically. Actually, maybe first and foremost economically as evidenced by the United States saying we might have an economic embargo against Turkey. And the EU and France, France has already called for an economic embargo against Turkey, probably for certain things, but damn skippy. I'll bet the French president's probably already crafting a message to the effect of we, uh, the Europeans and Americans, we should have an arms embargo against Turkey. We should not be selling these people weapons anymore because we don't know what the hell they're going to be doing with these weapons. Damn, that was good. I just came up with that on the spot. I hope Emmanuel Macron was listening. Kiss, kiss, Emmanuel. All my love from here to Paris. Anyway, next thing. All of this stuff I just talked about now is summarized in what I believe is going to be the biggest next flashpoint. And that is these territorial claims in the Eastern Mediterranean. And the headline on the bottom there is Eastern Mediterranean Tinderbox. Why Greek-Turkish rivalries have expanded, and you heard it from Boyer first, likely to get hot. And when I say hot, I don't mean people are angry. When I say hot, I mean missiles fired and shit blowing up. I think it's going to happen because I don't see how it doesn't happen. You have too many players in a small space. That is how wars start. Too many players with too many weapons in a small space. Even if they all say, we're just going to try to, we're just observers. Uh, or we're just here to uh, look for oil. Or we're just here to protect our assets. Or we're just here to defend our territory. When you have too many people doing that because they all bring guns, it's almost an inevitability that somebody bumps up somebody the wrong way, that a chip gets off track, that something goes wrong, that a test, uh, uh, a, a military practice test gets interpreted as a real military endeavor. So these sorts of things are how wars start, and it's going to start here. You heard it here first. Now, overlapping claims in Eastern Mediterranean, this gets back to uh, something Brett asked me. How is... Turkey going to pay for all this. Part of Turkey's uh, drive in a lot of this, especially in the Eastern Mediterranean, is for money. So Turkey is trying to claim as much territory in the Eastern Mediterranean as it possibly can, because in the last five to 10 years, all sorts of speculation has turned into a reality that there's a ton of natural gas under the Eastern Mediterranean waters. Perhaps a shit ton of natural gas. And the more of the territorial waters that you claim are yours and can defend means that's more gas for you. Whoever says that? Whoever wants more gas in their lives? Well, if, you're, if it's natural gas, you want as much as you can. Uh, and so there's a couple of different things going on here that have, uh, are going to come to a head because of competing claims. And so this map is showing you uh, uh, competing claims. And they're not even showing the Israeli claims in here to... Off the coast of Israel, they're claiming waters they think have gas. Off the coast of Turkey, off the coast of Cyprus. And that becomes a bigger issue because what's going on in Cyprus, that has a lot to do with how much territory Turkey can claim. Uh, they have just developed something called the Blue Homeland. The Blue Homeland principle of Turkey, which I guess is something about, hey, we own everything that's blue that we can see. <laughs> uh, but what we're getting at specifically is 
this gets back to our podcast number one uh, about who Turkey was ticking off. This island called Cyprus, it's actually a state. It's actually a sovereign state on planet Earth. It has a seat at the United Nations. However, there's two different Cyprus's. Uh, and the Greek influence, the ethnically Greek Cypriotic area is on the, in the south. And in 1974, uh, the Greek mainland tried to, oh, let's say encourage a coup, a military coup to take over the leadership of Cyprus in order for it to become more pro-Greek because there's ethnically Turkish people in the north and ethnically Greek people in the south. And even though it was a sovereign state, uh, there was some hijinks with a coup. Uh, sponsored by the Greeks, uh, and in retaliation in the same year, Turkey invaded uh, with military force and invaded the north and carved out the Turkish Cyprus area. So right now, everyone on planet Earth recognizes that there's a state called Cyprus, okay? Everybody does. They have a seat at the UN. However, uh, the government that's accepted and recognized as running that place is the Greek part. And the northern part that's the northern Turkish Cypriot area is separate and has its own government that's only recognized by Turkey for obvious reasons. <laughs> and so Turkey has been funneling people because if you get a bunch of people in there, then you can claim that, hey, by the way, there's Turkish people there that we need to help defend. Uh, there's people there. They've, they've siphoned in money to prop up the place. They've siphoned in guns for the military. And this becomes much more important now. We could look at this as just a historic territorial issue and say, well, whatever. It's stupid. They shouldn't be fighting about this, uh, but it's no big deal. Well, you know what? It wasn't a big deal till five or 10 years ago until it added on to the Aegean dispute. And the Aegean dispute is that Greece and Turkey claim ownership over different islands in the Aegean Sea. And this now becomes specifically super important in today's world where everybody's trying to grab water because they think there's gas under it. And what you're seeing here, the Aegean Sea is lit up. Cyprus is not even in the Aegean Sea. It's further southwest. But the point being that there's something called the uh, uh, International Treaty of the Sea. Is that the name of it? The International Treaty to, to Law of the Sea. International Law of the Sea that most countries on planet Earth have agreed to. It's a United Nations thing. The United Nations Treaty or International Law of the Sea. And in that, us humans have gotten to the point that we all know who owns what land, and now we're scrambling to figure out who owns all the water. And what almost all countries agree to, although the United States has not signed this treaty, and nor has Turkey. Boy, that feels like a test question if I were to give a test. But the United States nor Turkey have signed or agreed to this treaty for reasons you'll now understand. The treaty basically says, hey, we're going to try to do this as fairly as we can. So we understand that all countries that have coastline have a need to be able to defend their territory. So let's say up to 12 nautical miles off of the actual coastline you have is your property. So from the shoreline, 12 miles out, let's just say the 12 miles off the coast of the United States, that's the United States. It's water, but for all practical purposes, it's the United States. If Russia were to send a military ship into within 12 miles of the U.S. coastline, that would be considered an act of war because you've just invaded America, even though you're not on the land. Does that make sense? So 12 miles off the shore, that's your property. Another 200 nautical miles 
is a exclusive economic zone. And by the way, I think some of these things uh, are not being shown on this map, but these are actually within the continental shelf. So that's a geologic thing that people can agree to. Everything else is man-made, so we're just making the shit up. We're saying 12 miles off the coast. You know what? The coast moves, right? So 12 miles off of what? High tide or low tide? Let's just call it 12 miles. The continental shelf is something real. It's a geological thing that you can actually see. Oh, this is when, you know, the continent actually ends and it goes to deep water to open ocean. There are additional components of the law of the sea that say you might have some claim off of your continental shelf as well. All I want you to know is that 12, roughly 12 nautical miles, that's your territory. Up to 200 nautical miles is an exclusive economic zone, so nobody can fish in your exclusive economic zone. And let's say, oh, I don't know, if there was natural gas under that, then that's your natural gas if it's within 200 miles off of your coastline. Are you starting to see why this is of consequence now? Now look at the map of the Aegean Sea. Virtually all of those islands you see pointed out belong to Greece. And therefore, 12 nautical miles off of all those islands belong to Greece. Look close at the map, including all of the ones that literally are less than 12 miles from the Turkish coast. So in these circumstances where you have two different sovereign states that are so close together that it's not even 12 miles, or, or let's say it's not even 200 miles for an exclusive economic zone, and perhaps not even 12 miles to be completely just your territory, in those circumstances, when things are that close together, you just split the difference. So let's say in the island of, you know, I don't know, Kos or Lesbos, that's very close to the Turkish shore of Turkey proper. In those circumstances, you just say, okay, the island of Chios is 52 nautical miles from the coast of uh, Turkey. So just divide that in half. And Turkey, you got one half. And, and Greece, you got the other half. So the Aegean Sea dispute is based on that no one's kind of solidified those lines yet, and they're very hard to define. I don't know if you've ever been on the open ocean, but it's hard to build fences there. You can't. So there's always going to be a problem claiming, defending, and especially if, if your island or your piece of property is less than you know, 50 miles to the next piece of property and you're splitting the difference, well, okay, <laughs> What if the natural gas vein is right in the middle? Or what if there's a natural gas or an oil deposit? It's easier to understand. What if there's a gigantic oil deposit underground that you can tap into on either side of that line? Well, who gets it then? So this is why that these countries are, especially Greece and Turkey, are at each other's throats fighting about who owns what property. And let me go back to this. Now this becomes more important. Who owns Cyprus, right? Because if Greece takes over the northern part, then they get the 12 miles exclusive and 200 exclusive economic zone all around the entire island of Cyprus, which is significant. And if we go back one more slide, you see that Turkey saying, no, 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 that's Turkish Cyprus. So we own, for the northern part, we own 12 miles in all directions and a 200 ec uh, mile economic zone. So that natural gas is ours because of Turkish Cyprus. Cyprus, I'm sorry, Turkish Cypriot area. Now do you see why all these countries are wildly pissed off at each other? And these are the competing claims in this gray zone or that's up for grabs that Greece is claiming some of it, Turkey's claiming some of it, and again, Israel's in this game. Syria would be in this game, except it's in a civil war and so backwards it couldn't even field a boat in the water at this point. 
So this is why you have an issue that you have maritime patrols from multiple countries now. If you see on this map, Libya and Egypt have claims in the Med too. And now you're seeing countries that are siding up with each other and recognizing each other's claims just to piss off someone else. And right now it's Egypt and Greece and, and Southern Cyprus are siding up with each other and saying, hey, we're all going to recognize each other's claims to solidify and legitimize them just to piss off Turkey so they can't say that they own more than they are going to try to claim. Libya, on the other hand, is an ally of Turkey. So Libya is saying, well, we recognize the Turkish claims, but we don't recognize the Egyptian, uh, Cyprus, Greece claims. That's what a freaking mess this is. And it's not just patrol boats that are out there now. You have active uh, uh, oil, natural gas, uh, technology, you know, uh, uh, fueled boats that are out there actually doing work. So people building, I assume, building platforms to extract gas and oil and the construction and engineering crews that go with that. And right there, I don't think we're at that point yet, but they're out there patrolling, doing seabed analysis and sending divers down and collecting samples, trying to figure out what the, uh, natural gas is. All of those ships from these different countries are starting to bump into each other because it's not settled who owns what. And now you have places like Turkey and Greece as well who are sending military boats to escort their technology boats to make sure that nobody messes with their technology exploration boats. And this is where I'm starting to say, watch out. Now you're you're getting you're starting to play with fire now. No pun intended since it's all natural gas underneath of it, but you're starting to play with fire when you have competing claims and now competing military vessels in a small area protecting their claims. And of course, all these places own airplanes too. Let's call them jets actually. And now you have jets starting to patrol the airspace to protect their territorial water claims. And it don't take long for supersonic jets going two to 500 miles an hour getting near each other to have an accident or somebody pissing somebody off and somebody firing upon each other. This is the beginning of this story, not even the end. So five is Tur Turkey's territory claims on the Eastern Med, which are becoming very vocal and becoming militarized mostly by Turkey. I'm not making fun of Turkey. Greece is probably doing some stuff too and probably Cyprus. But Turkey is being the most adamant about it with their blue water platform, whatever the hell I said it was. Uh, they are being very bellicose about it, saying, nope, we're sending boats. You better get the hell out of our way. Again, this plays into the whole theme of this 10 hours of podcasting I've done this week. This is a new avenue for Turkey. They are going it alone. What effect does this have on its allies? This particular issue is now pissing off everybody in the Mediterranean. Everybody except Libya. Uh, Egypt is not happy. Israel is not happy. The EU is not happy. France is furious. France keeps coming in saying, hey, the EU needs to put sanctions on Turkey because just because of this issue. So Turkey getting into the EU, you can kiss that goodbye. That got flushed down the Mediterranean toilet because of this particular issue. That's done. That, that's never happening now. And a host of other issues which you don't even think about. Namely, the EU two weeks ago uh, tried to pass a resolution to have an embargo against Belarus. Remember the Belarus thing? I talked about Belarus a couple of few weeks ago, where there's a dictator, a faulty election, people protesting. So the EU 
with one voice wanted to say, we're passing a resolution to condemn the Belarusian election and to put an embargo on Belarusian leaders. And that got vetoed. What? Who in their right mind would not want to stand up against a dictator with a faulty election who's persecuting his own people? Does anybody know who did that? Uh, for a uh, EU resolution to take effect, 100% of EU members have to vote for it. You can have no vetoes. And only one country vetoed it. Can you guess what country that was? Any guesses? Any guesses in the chat room? Anyone guess of all 27 European Union countries, which is the one country who said, no, we're going to hold that up? I just want to hear one guess. This is to see if anybody's still listening. <laughs> All right, no guesses. I'll give you a hint. It's on this map. The answer is Cyprus. And you're like, wait, 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 what? What the hell does a small half country in the Mediterranean, an island, care about Belarus? Why would they be defending Belarus? They weren't. Cyprus vetoed the resolution because Cyprus said, we are not going to agree to another single resolution until the EU as a whole condemns Turkey over what they're doing in the Eastern Mediterranean. So there you go. Uh, a military slash economic strategic move that Turkey has made in the Eastern Mediterranean is affecting EU politics and is affecting a sanction on a dictator in another country. That's how convoluted all this is. And then I'll end with what I've already talked about. The EU will never now accept Turkey. I can't imagine it, unless they use some sort of intense leverage on uh, uh, Turkey to change its ways to get it in. But what are its effects on NATO? This is my biggest intriguing component of all this. Now you have, for the first time, as several of you have already pointed out, we have the first situation that two NATO countries may attack each other. And we don't know how that plays out. It's never happened. It's not even come close to happening. And now it seems likely to happen to me. Both countries obviously are petitioning NATO to make fun of the other country. It's not going to happen. Uh, both countries may at some point, if any sort of uh, conflagration erupts, any sort of missiles fired, any sort of ships downed, both countries could go to NATO and say, we were attacked by another country. NATO has to come defend us. How, okay, how do you do that uh, when they're a NATO member? We don't know. Uh, I believe that you're likely seeing the end game for Turkey as a member of NATO uh, if they stay on this very independent course. And we can kind of end with this. Okay, everything I've talked about is how Turkey's on a very independent trajectory. It's doing its own thing. Is a clash with Turkey becoming inevitable? And I can't even remember where I got this news story at. I don't know who wrote it. I'm asking the question, okay, well, who, who's going to get into a fight with Turkey? Well, Greece is ready. Maybe the EU is ready. I don't think the United States is ready. I'm not sure NATO is ready. I don't think Russia wants to do it. So, okay, what will happen? Okay, well, we can end with something like this. And actually, that's a more complicated thing than I even want to do that. Uh, actually, I will say something about this. The other thing that I didn't even talk about because it's too convoluted, it's a whole, a whole other half hour, is that one of the reasons why the Arab states in particular do not like uh, Recep Erdogan is because he is sympathetic to the Muslim Brotherhood. And 
he is moving Turkey more in a direction of, as I suggested earlier, of being more friendly and open to religion playing a part of the government structure. Now, he hasn't done that yet, but it is the great fear of a lot of secularist Turks and the EU and the US and NATO countries and even Arab countries that he moves in that direction. It worries everybody. Uh, and again, it's it's Erdogan's Turkey going on a separate path, going their own way, doing something that no one's done before them, except maybe Iran. So the the movement, the cozying up to Islamic political parties in other countries is the main reason why a lot of Arab states totally hate Erdogan. It's why it's part of the reason why er, uh, Israel is not really too happy with Erdogan right now. And the United States can't be that happy with it either. But part of this is what I referenced earlier, Turkey exerting itself culturally to be a leader of Turkic peoples, Turkey exerting itself religiously to be the premier Islamic state or state of Muslims, which is powerful, which speaks with its own voice, which stands up against the West, which stands up against Israel, which does whatever it is that Erdogan wants to do. This is part of reestablishing and expanding Turkey's historical regional influence that is unfortunately drawing him into more conflicts with folks that used to be their allies for a very long time. And my end thoughts on this, Turkey is definitely on a new path, forsaking almost all others at this point, for better or for worse. It sees itself as a regional titan, one unafraid to go it alone. And I do like this article I found right before I got online. Turkey's neo-Ottoman reach could also soon nettle China. I love thinking big thoughts like this. So as if I'm correct, and other folks who are saying these things, if I'm correct and Turkey is seeing itself not as a powerful country in and of itself, and not just even as a powerful country in its immediate neighborhood, but as a powerful country which exerts influence across the Mediterranean and into Central Asia, and perhaps even amongst fellow Muslims in the Middle East, now you've got an, uh, a, a, a power which is bumping into other major powers. It's already starting to bump into the EU. It's already starting to bump into Russia. But when you start to say, hey, well, Turkey's going to be a leader of Central Asia. Okay, now you're bumping into China. Now China may take uh, 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 offense to some of these things. In conclusion, for fans of this new path, by the way, Turkey has every right to look out after its own uh, self-preservation, to look out its own defense interest, to look out for its own economic interest. I am not making fun of Turkey in any way, shape, or form by pointing these things out. If there was a natural gas uh, underwater deposit anywhere near the shores of America, trust me, America would claim it. If there was natural gas within a thousand miles of China, China would claim it. So Turkey's just doing what states do protecting itself, setting up defense, defensive strategy, uh, uh, strategic areas, even outside of its own territory. Uh, this is not new and it's not anything that's bad. It's in their own self-interest and self-preservation in security and defense. Perhaps a stronger regional power like Turkey may help stabilize uh, this very volatile area, which so far, and this is, again, I'm defending Turkey a little bit, Maybe it's good that Turkey becomes a powerful regional entity because every outside entity that's tried to do anything in the Middle East for as long as I've been alive has screwed it up worse. Can you point to any entity who's gone into a Middle Eastern situation 
and it got better by the end. I can't think of one. I guess you could say, oh, we killed Saddam Hussein. Sure, and look what a rosy picture Iraq is in today's world. I'm not defending Saddam Hussein, by the way. Screw him, he's dead. Uh, but perhaps a strong, independent uh, a power like Turkey exuding its influence beyond its own borders may provide some sort of leadership to the greater region, which may be good. And it was dissing by the EU that helped Turkey get to this independent path. For anyone that took my class uh, a decade ago or even before that, I was suggesting that if the EU did not let Turkey in, that Turkey was eventually going to turn its back on the West and become a leader in the uh, Middle East and Central Asia. Damn, am I good or what? I, I said that a very long time ago. Now, for those uh, uh, emboldened, proud Turks who have listened to everything I've said and said, yes, hell yeah, boyer. We're proud of our country. We're proud of Turkey. Turkey's awesome. Turkey's going its own way. Turkey, Tur Erdogan's making Turkey great again. <laughs> Taga, Turkey's great again. Um, and what's wrong with that? Well, again, I'm not suggesting anything is wrong with that. However, you do have to realize that there are unforeseen consequences. There are always unforeseen consequences. And for those Turkish fans or even international watchers who are fans of Turkey's emboldened foreign policy and perhaps uh, exuding power and becoming a first-rate world power, what Turkey and you fans of this have to realize is there are costs. And part of the cost of these moves Turkey's made is that Erdogan has definitely made Turkey into a more authoritarian state. I already have uh, uh, moved it from the Democratic column to a one-party state column. And the trouble with the trouble with one-party states and uh, dictatorships or even monarchies, in a certain sense, is that when you have a very powerful leader that charts a new course for your country, he or she dies eventually. And right now, everything is wrapped up in Erdogan. It's Erdogan's Turkey. Okay, it's Erdogan's turkey. He is calling all the shots. And they're doing okay right this minute, but what happens when things go bad? What happens when the economy collapses? What happens when Erdogan dies? Uh, th th this is problematic for long-term thinking. If the people don't have a voice, the more and more of the people that don't have a voice become more and more disenfranchised. And then if Turkey gets involved in a war or the economy collapses, countries like this, are in a very tenuous situation and things can fall apart very rapidly, very rapidly. So the authoritarianism is a price that they've paid for this newfound emboldened stance. But also I want you to kind of think about uh, when you go it alone and you piss off all your allies, that means you don't have those allies there when you need them anymore. And what happens to Turkey if they attack Greece or another EU country and the EU says, that's it, trade embargo, what happens if they bump up against uh, an American ship defending some Greek ships and the Americans get pissed off? What happens if they attack Greece and NATO decides to kick Turkey out of NATO? Well, now you can say, hey, Turkey's powerful and they're awesome and they can do what they want. You're absolutely right. But what happens when Turkey's not NATO anymore? 
and what happens when Turkey's not a NATO member, and Russia realizes that. And Russia realizes, hey, we're way bigger than Turkey, and Turkey's been pissing us off. And so we're going to invade Turkey because no one's going to help Turkey now. That is a significant consideration. Uh, you can like NATO, you can hate NATO, but it's an incredibly powerful entity to be a part of to prevent people from messing with you. And if Turkey's out, just go read a little bit of quick history to see how many times Turkey and Russia have already been at war with each other. It's more than a couple, and Turkey's usually lost. So, I, I, yeah, to me, you got to take the good with the bad on this. I kind of think it's intriguing that Turkey's going its own way, and there's lots of positive attributes to that. But there's also potential huge pitfalls and problems. Going it alone seems to be the trend in today's world. Donald Trump wants to be America only. Uh, Great Britain wanted out Brexit so they could be by themselves. China don't need no one. It's going to build a worldwide network that will all benefit China. They're very open about these things. Uh, you have other world leaders like the Filipino whack doodle that's like, kill everybody who disagrees with me. These strong men are all about their country being great and doing great things and going back to the old school ways. But we live in an interconnected world and there are costs to these things. And if your country can't maintain its economy above all other things, it won't be around for very long. So my fear is that Turkey perhaps is biting off a little bit more than it can chew. It's not, it's not in an economic situation to go it alone quite yet, but it's ditching its allies as if it were. <laughs> That's the Boyer analysis. That's my three-part 20-hour podcast on Turkey ticking off everyone. And now you know why. And what it's all about is that a new neo-Ottoman empire being reestablished. I think that's a bit of a push. I like it, though. I like the symbology of that. And I will now field any questions that you have. Thank all two of you for tuning in this entire time. Do we have two people? <laughs> oh, yeah, but I can go back to my beautiful face. Yes. There's that. Yes. Just maybe a The China fishing boat issue? Uh, Did I talk about a Chinese fishing no, boat? Saying in the future, like for, can you reiterate what you said at the beginning of what you're going to talk about next week? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. A bunch of people hit me up about they read stories that China was invading Taiwan or that China made plans to invade Taiwan or that China warned Taiwan they're getting ready to be invaded. I, I think it was a military exercise that China did in anticipation of invading Taiwan mostly as a propaganda piece to give it to Taiwan to say, hey, by the way, we might invade you. Yes, I would love to talk about Taiwan. That situation is getting hot as well. Again, <coughs> strangely enough, China and Turkey are basically on the same trajectory, that both of them were playing the game and building an economy and being part of international institutions for the last 20 to 30 to 40 years till they got strong. And now both countries, China more than Turkey, is like, nope, we're, we're doing whatever we want to do now. We're powerful enough. We're going to take over whatever we want and do whatever we want and build whatever we want, including taking over Taiwan. That's an issue we get to. Turkey seems to be following that path. On Twitch, you got a, what's the best way to make a turkey sandwich, though? I guess <laughs> the answer to that. Uh, uh, I, I, 
Ali Thar, 10, says, what's the best way to make a turkey sandwich, though? Well, you wait for Thanksgiving, and then the day after Thanksgiving, I actually do two days after Thanksgiving, two days after Thanksgiving, fresh sourdough bread, lightly toasted, a couple of pretty thickly cut pieces of leftover Thanksgiving turkey, skin on, skin on, a schmear of cranberry sauce on top of that. If you have any leftover stuffing, I kind of put some stuffing on there. And I do uh, mayonnaise on one side underneath the turkey and mayo, I'm, I'm sorry, mustard on the other side on top of... And cranberry? Uh, yeah, cranberry in the middle. Oh, yeah. And then I have some olives on the side. All the leftovers from Thanksgiving dinner. Other than that, a classic turkey club gets me every time, even with crappy white bread. And uh, how else do we like it? Um, isn't, what's a, um, what's the famous sandwich that has Russian dressing? I always, I put that in the textbook at one point. It, it's like a, it's a turkey, like a sliced turkey, but with Russian dressing. There's a certain name for that too. I always made fun of it because it had turkey for the Turks and Russian dressing for the Russians. Famous sandwich with Russian dressing. I can't think of what it is. Is a root well Reuben is sauerkraut though too. So we throw some Germans in there. <laughs> well, I love a good turkey Reuben too. Okay. Uh, Nerds or people says thanks for all the interesting info. This is definitely a fun way to keep up to date on current events. Thank you so much. And sorry it took me another two hours. I actually thought it was gonna be tight tonight. I felt good about it. But the thing about me lecturing, and I, I don't know if I've ever told anybody this, Katie knows this about me. Anybody that knows me personally and then sees me lecture, something magical happens when I talk out loud. My brain synapses fire faster, and I make connections that I can't make without lecturing. Meaning, if you sat me down before I was talking tonight and asked me a series of questions, I would not have known half the answers. But somehow, when I'm sitting here talking and people are asking me questions, dots get connected in rapid fire succession. And I'm like, oh yeah, oh, there is this, oh, there's that, oh my God, and this relates to that. And it's like, oh yeah, I love doing this. So I'm glad that you all like doing this and sorry it took me so long, but was, this was a serious brain synapse firing session for me, thinking about things that weren't even on my brain when I started talking. That's the magic of doing it out loud, but it takes longer too. Everybody hates things that take too long, but oh well. Uh, and someone says, that sounds delicious. Chuds, uh, Chuds Us says, that sounds delicious. It is. Now I want that sandwich. And uh, Ali Tara says, brilliant. This will help me immensely. <laughs> I'm glad I can help with all of your sandwich making needs after my two-hour talk, after an already three-hour talk. I think I just did five hours on the state of Turkey. And now we all need a turkey sandwich. Yes. Okay. Any other questions? From any other places on the intra webs. Uh, David S. on YouTube said, do you think Greece stands a chance against Turkey in a war? Who was that that asked that? David S. David S. asked, does Greece stand a chance against Turkey in a interstate conflict? No and maybe. So it's always hard to call a fight because a fight on the international stage is never between two people. So if you picked, um, you know, two WWF wrestlers and told me to pick a winner, I'd be like, okay, well, it's 50-50. I think that dude will win. I think that dude will beat up that dude. If we were 
talking simply about Greece on its own, getting into a fight with Turkey on its own, militarily, Turkey wins every time. Kind of like my post-Thanksgiving turkey sandwich beats a Greek gyro every time. Sandwich to sandwich, turkey sandwich wins. Turkey's military is significant. Uh, I'm not saying Greece doesn't have a military, but if you've been following current events at all in the last 20 years, you know that Greece is broke. (laughs) So I can't imagine, and they are not really a bellicose people, and Greece hasn't been in a war with anybody since World War II, which they were overrun with Nazis fairly quickly. So Point being that Turkey has been on its own and been a significant military power for quite some time. Turkey was built by a military man, Ataturk, who wanted to project strength from the creation of the state itself back in 1923. So the military's always been a formidable component of Turkey. Not so much for Greece. And especially as you play it forward into the modern world where Greece isn't getting into any fights and it's part of NATO. So it knew it would be defended if someone attacks it. And it's part of the EU. It doesn't need, doesn't have any qualms with any of its neighbors. So while there's always been historical animosity between Greece and Turkey, there's not ever been open firefight unless you count Cyprus back in 1974. And even that was a proxy war, a semi-proxy war that didn't last long. So the, the, again, the answer is absolutely no. And yes, Greece, had no, Greece has no chance on a fist-to-fist fight with Turkey. However, I also said maybe, and the maybe is because, yeah, well, Greece has allies. Greece is a a NATO member. So is Turkey, which makes it problematic. We've already pointed that out. But Greece will also have the EU to have its back. And France has been very vocal already saying, hey, we do not like what Turkey's doing. And hey, Turkey, you got to stop messing with Greece. So Greece already has a bit of backup. And as this three-part podcast has pointed out, Turkey increasingly does not have any backup. Now, it doesn't need it militarily if it's a one-to-one fight. But how many fights are one-to-one in today's modern world? So I don't know how it will go down. I, I think the, it's likely, I've already suggested, I think it's likely that some ships and planes and jets get blowed up and maybe soon. I think it's likely, an altercation is likely between these forces who were all patrolling around the Eastern Med. I think it's likely. I think if it goes beyond an accidental confrontation that everybody calms down about real quick, if it goes to the next level of boats fighting against boats, Turkey wins, but how far do they want to push it? And then how much is the international community going to come out and get involved. And I think it's likely that Turkey sinks a bunch of Greeks' boats and perhaps downs a bunch of Greek jets. And that will probably end fairly quickly after that because the international community will get involved and Turkey will, even Turkey on its current trajectory, will feel pressure to not make it a slaughterhouse. So that's why it's a tough one to call. Yes, I think conflict is inevitable. I think it'll be a limited skirmish, first and foremost, if it goes past that. It's an extended skirmish, which Turkey still wins. But I believe anything more than that will likely get shut down by the international community. There are still levers that can be pulled, and Turkey can be talked into calming down, and their concessions can be made. 
And, you know, when countries go to war, you could find out very quickly that it brings everybody to the negotiating table immediately. So if Turkey's willing to go kill Greek people and, Greek, and the Greeks are willing to kill Turkish people, that might force the hand of the international community that says, hey, okay, you know what? Everybody's sitting down right now and we're going to divide up the Eastern Med right now, right now. And we're going to have international observers in there right now. So that might expedite a solution, but I still think it's likely that people die before we get to that point. Just a Boyer prediction. Uh, and uh, Nerds Where People says, it's all good. I, I listen to a two-hour podcast every damn night. And Vicky Lara says, so would Turkey have northern Iraq for natural resources as much for the threat of Kurds? Yeah. I mean, again, this is, that, that's wild conjecture on my part. I, to, I totally admit, admit that Turkey taking over northern Iraq, if, if Iraq disintegrates, is wild conjecture. Iraq disintegrating, by the way, is not wild conjecture, but it's slightly wild conjecture to suggest that Turkey might take it over. But I kind of, I don't think it's that wild. I kind of see Turkey with Turkey's current moves. And again, everything I've talked about for 10 hours, with its current attitude and its current mood, and its currently deployed troops all over the place, I just don't see it as much of a stretch of the imagination that they would say, no, we, we have to occupy northern Iraq for our own territorial safety. Uh, and if you think that's a stretch of the imagination, why do you think Israel occupies the West Bank and the Gaza Strip and this other place called the Golan Heights, which is in Syria? Israel has occupied the Golan Heights and been allowed to occupy the Golan Heights under fear uh, that it, to let it go back to Syria would be to put itself in peril. The Golan Heights are just that. They're high. So it's a great military strategic place that Syria could put rockets and missiles and shoot into Israel. So Israel says, hey, we're occupying this area. We're not claiming it. We're occupying it so that it's a self-defense thing. We're not trying to claim it because we want it. We're claiming it for self-defense. And to me, that would be exactly how Turkey would do it. Turkey would say, hey, well, we have to claim Kurdistan because if we don't, it will jeopardize our uh, territorial integrity and we would promote um, PKK radicalism and terrorism, which they're already saying. So that's why I'm making that, again, it's a bit of a stretch of the imagination, uh, but we live under a delusion. Most of us all the time live under a delusion that the way that territories and states are drawn are the way that it's always been and the way that it always will be. We have lived in a very interesting era of uh, human experience where since World War II, borders have been kind of the same. Things have been stagnant, so to speak. You don't have territorial wars anymore. You don't have empires rising and crashing anymore. It just doesn't happen. But that's an illusion slash delusion that the way things are in the world right now is the way they're always going to be nonsense. Everything's always under change. So the idea of a collapsing Iraq to me is, oh, Turkey takes over the northern part. Iran takes over uh, the uh, eastern part. And maybe what's left in the west becomes a state or gets absorbed by, I don't know, Syria, if they got their act together. Or maybe Syria collapses too. And you just rework the whole map. Of It's happened many times in the past. It's called history. Go look it up. So we are not at the end of history. And 
if things are to go south in this area in, in terms of Iraq and or Syria, I Turkey is well equipped and already well situated to take over parts of Syria and Iraq. They already have troops there. That's why I mention it. Okay, are we done? Are we good? Any more questions? Thank you all so, so very much for hanging out with me in our feeble attempt to educate the world about particular issues. I don't really think I'm that smart, but I have fun doing it. And I do put two and two together and come up with ten and a half sometimes. It's fun. Hi from Taiwan. Taiwan, we're going to talk about you next week. Let's do it. Let's talk about China's rise and some of its territorial expansion plans that include Taiwan, because so many students have already asked me about it. Hope all is well in Taiwan. Hope all is well in India, where I'm sure Vikram is tuning in from. Uh, we've had some other people from Africa, some from uh, Thailand, I think. Welcome to all. Hope you all learned a little something and had a good time. And I'm supposed to say something like, click click me or like me or follow me or subscribe subscribe to me it always seems weird to say but sure if you want alerts i'm i'm trying to get into a zone of doing a lot more of these on a regular basis so subscribe so that you get alerts when i am going to do something if you're interested in hearing me do something but for now as always hope you had a great night hope you learned something and party on until next time